Good morning, Cedar Creek Church. How are we this morning? That was good. That was good. You got extra sleep, so I expect you to have some energy this morning, all right? If I haven't had the pleasure to meet you, my name is Jordan Nates, and I am the Centerpoint Director here at our Banksville campus. Centerpoint is our middle school and high school ministry. And if I were to use the word excited for how I feel about this morning, it would definitely be an understatement because I am excited as we continue to look in the book of Romans. We continue in our Roman series, but also I am excited or the word that's even greater than excited about the fact that we have the whole family involved this morning as we get to gather together. And so as we get started this morning, I thought, man, I work in student ministry. I would not be a good student ministry person if we did not start with some type of game. Who wants to play a game this morning? Who's in? Who's in? Sweet. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We, when, when we get started, we are going to have a number of emojis that go on the screen and they are going to describe a movie. So what I'm going to want you to do, kids, listen, just keep your answer in your head for just a few seconds. And then I'm going to count down from three and everybody gives me your answer. You ready? This means yes. This means no. Okay. We'll see how it goes. All right. So let's start with the first one. We have a fist and we have a panda. All right. Got your answer. Got your answer locked in. All right. Three, two, one. You guys are, you guys are smart. You're very smart. All right. Let's go to the next one. A little bit more difficult. We have a lion, a grave, a warthog, a crown, and another lion. Get your answer locked in. All right. Three, two, one. Yes, there we go. You guys, two for two. You guys are on it this morning. All right, let's go with the third one. What we got? We got a cowboy, a spaceman, a rocket ship, a dinosaur, and a book. All right, three, two, one. Yes, there you go. You got a little bit of extra help there. All right, last one. This might be a little bit more difficult. We have a planet, a bunny, a duck, and a basketball. Count it down from three. Three, two, one. Everybody get up. All right, never mind. I'm sorry. I'm not going to get in that. But all right, so we do that this morning because we, this morning, the question that kept coming in my head as I prepared for this this week is the question that I know all of you have asked before. If we had to describe the gospel using emojis, how would we do it? Okay, I'm just kidding. All of you are like, I've never had any thought close to that. What is wrong with your brain? I don't know. We're still trying to figure it out. But just for a moment, just, just, give, me, just give me your time this morning and just give me a, an opportunity for us to think through this. Like if we, let's think back because uh, who wrote the book of Romans is Paul. So this morning, if we were to describe or if Paul was to describe what the gospel is, what emojis would he use? And we started to look at the gospel last week and all throughout the book of Romans, it's just the gospel over and over and over again. And Pastor Philip started talking about it last week in Romans 2 and 3, specifically in Romans 3, where he begins to look at what the gospel is and what it means for our lives. And so what I want us to do, we're gonna look in Romans four and five. We're specifically gonna be in Romans five nineteen. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn there or click there. But as we look, I just want you to imagine, obviously this isn't what happened, but if the apostle Paul had a cell phone 
And based off of what we see in Romans four and five, what emojis would he use to describe the gospel? And for some of you this morning, you're like, well, hey, Pastor Philip talked about the gospel this morning. We're talking about the gospel again this morning. Why we gotta keep talking about the gospel? We know it, man, it's, it's basic, right? Like, why do we have to keep talking about the gospel? And what we need to realize as Christians is that the gospel is not something that we graduate from. It's not something that we move on from. It is something that we grow deeper in, that we ground ourselves in each and every day. I don't know about you, but every morning that I wake up, specifically this morning, as I'm preparing to bring God's word to you, I have to preach the gospel to myself before I can preach it to other people. It's almost like we have this gospel amnesia where I'll wake up every morning and I'm like, the gospel, that word sounds familiar, but what does it actually mean for my life? And I have to preach it to myself. There's a pastor by the name of Timothy Keller that once said that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Z. It's not something that we graduate from. It's not something we move on from. It is something that we are to grow deeper in daily. And so my prayer for us this morning is that regardless of how long you've been following Jesus, my prayer for us this morning that we wouldn't have callous hearts or minds towards the gospel message because we're super familiar with it or we become numb to it because we've heard it so much and we can recite it to someone else. But my prayer for us this morning is, is the prayer out of Colossians 2.6 where Paul says that in the same way that we received Jesus, that we are to receive him daily. So with the same awe, and the same wonder and the same thankfulness and the same desperation that we first had when we gave our lives to Jesus, that we would be filled with those same things this morning. And for those that have never made that decision, maybe you're here in church, you don't even wanna be here. You were dragged here. You're still trying to figure out what this may look like. My prayer for us or prayer for you this morning is that you would experience those things that I just mentioned. And so as we look this morning here, based off of what Paul says, here is the gospel in emojis. The first one is this, it's a globe. And it means that we were all created for a relationship with God. That if we wanna understand what we're about to look at, where Paul is taking us in Romans four and five and where he's already taken us through the letter, then this truth has to be at the backdrop of the truth that he preaches to us. That Paul doesn't, in any part of Romans, he doesn't absolutely, like he doesn't directly address this truth but it's addressed throughout the entire Bible and most famously at the beginning of Genesis. We see at the very beginning of the Bible that the greatest thing about you and the greatest thing about me is that each and every one of us were created by the same God that created the entire universe. That he created each and every one of us and scripture shows us that he was intentional with every single aspect about what makes you who you are. Psalm 139, it shows that even when we were formless, the eyes of God were on us and he already knew our entire life day by day by day. And he was so intentional in the creation process because he wanted to be in a relationship with us where we knew him fully and he knew us fully. And not only that, but he made us where we could have anything and everything we could possibly ever need or want in him. The fullness of love, the fullness of peace, the fullness of joy, the fullness of satisfaction, the fullness of acceptance, you name it. And we were created to have it in him. 
And we see a glimpse of this unhindered relationship in Genesis 1 and 2 through the first human beings, Adam and Eve. And God creates both of them and puts them in this paradise. Quick quiz, what's the paradise called? What is it? I'm gonna take that as Eden. It meant even, right? Um, and in Genesis 1, God gives them two clear commands on what they are to do. It says to be fruitful and increase so that they may fill the earth and to reflect God by ruling over creation like he ruled over them. And in the midst of that, he tells them, hey, you can have any fruit on any tree in here. I'm gonna give you a redemption time. What is the one tree that he says you're not to eat from? There we go. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do Adam and Eve do? They do the complete opposite of that. Because through the tempting of Satan in the form of a certain, he gets them to do the complete opposite and they eat the fruit anyway, which leads us to the harsh reality and the next emoji of an apple, which represents that our sins separate us from God. Our sin separates us from God, that the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God was broken and they were separated from him because what is perfect, God, and what is imperfect, us cannot be together. And this is not just true for Adam and Eve, but this is true for each and every one of us. And we see this in the first part of Romans 5, 19. Look in your Bibles there, or look on the screens. It says this, Paul tells us this. He says, for just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Look also what he says in Romans 5, 12. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all people have sinned. And in those passages, we see as I was taught growing up, I was taught your decisions have a ripple effect on you and the people around you based off of the consequences that they might bring, good or bad. That there's a ripple effect of impact that happens. And we see this in these passages about Adam's rebellion against God. It led to the entrance of sin, the entrance of death and the spread of universal death because of sin. His one decision led to a multi-stage chain reaction of sin entering the world, death entering the world through sin, and this death spreading to all humans because of sin. When he sinned, he suffered alienation from God, he experienced pain and he experienced death. And not only did he experience it, but he passed it on to all humanity. These are the things, these are passed on to us because as Paul says, all have sinned. We not only sin like Adam, but we sin because we are all born in Adam and apart from God and full of sin. Sin isn't something that we have to learn how to do. It's something that just, we are naturally bent when we are born, we are naturally bent to sin. If you don't believe me, take a group of middle school boys to summer camp. Talk, talk to a parent of a toddler, right? Take a scroll on social media, watch the news. Just, it, you can see that sin is not something that we have to learn how to do. It comes natural to us. And the effects of Adam's disobedience, they have universal effects on each and every one of us because sin comes natural to each and every one of us. And sin not only separates us from God, but it blinds us from our need for God. That in our sin, the only thing that can save us is God himself. But what sin does is it blinds us from the very need that we have for God. So what this looks like a lot of the time 
is that we have legitimate desires in each and every one of us, but we go to illegitimate places to find those desires to be filled. Because as I mentioned before, God created us with legitimate desires of love, of feeling peace, of feeling joy, of feeling acceptance, of feeling known, of feeling valued. And in our sin, those desires are still there, but we're blinded to the fact that they can only be filled by God. So we run to anything and everything to try to have those desires filled in a way that we were not created to have them filled. This morning, I don't know where you are, but you can take any decision, good or bad that you've made. It could be a a relationship that you got involved in. It could be the way that you responded to somebody. It could be something that you watched or listened to. I don't know, but if you dig past the surface of that what that you did, and we dig deep into the roots of the why, the reason why you made that decision, a lot of times more than not, we will see that deep, deep down the why had to do because you were searching for love. You got into that relationship, you pursued that relationship because you wanted to feel love. You wanted to feel peace. You wanted to feel accepted by someone else. It applies to any and every one of our situations. And this is what sin does. And this is super important for us to realize because sin seeks to have God-given desires filled by anything but God. That the desires that God has given us we go to everything but God to have them filled. And our sin separates us from the most life-giving relationship that you and I could ever have with God. But not only that, sin can't go unpunished. We have to be punished or someone has to be punished in some type of way for the sins that each and every one of us have committed. Paul talks about this in Romans 5.18. Look at this, he says, so then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Meaning because of Adam's sin and the passing down of it onto us, we are worthy of God's wrath and God's punishment. And regardless of how long you've been in church, you might be sitting and be like, golly, Jordan, that sounds a, sounds a little rough just for taking a bite of an apple, right? Like what, what's the big deal? Like just, can you tell God just to calm down, right? But what we see in scripture, sin isn't just, hey, this guy ate an apple and he's in trouble now because he didn't do what he was told to do. That's not what sin is. What sin is, it's not merely the breaking of a rule. What sin is, is you and I saying that we make a better God in our lives than the God of the universe does. That God created each and every one of us to live in a particular way with him in a way that leads us to the fullness of life. And we say, nope, I got a better way. I can do it better. That's what sin is. And we take where God deserves the highest place of worship in each and every one of our lives and we replace it with something else. Because we think, and what sin causes us to do, it causes us to think that we make a better God than God does. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about this part of the gospel, the fact that our sin separates us from God, and not only that, but we are deserving of eternal wrath And punishment, I don't know about you, but there's a sense of urgency that comes inside. Like, whoa, 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 we gotta do something. Like there's gotta be something on my own that I can do to take care of this. Man, maybe there's something I can buy. Maybe there's a class I can go to. Maybe there's a book I can read, right? Where I can figure this out on my own and we we can do it, right? The gospel says the complete opposite. The gospel says that there is nothing we can do on our own to gain this relationship. 
There is nothing that we can do on our own to gain this relationship back. And you're probably looking at the screen right now and thinking, why in the heck is this emoji an old dude? Like, what, what does that have to do with my works? But remember, we're looking through Romans four and five and in Romans four and five, as, as Pastor Philip talked about last week, he said that our faith in God is what gets us into right relationship with God, that our faith in Jesus, his finished work, not our own works is what gets us into relationship with God. And so to pr- further prove that point in Romans four and five, what Paul does is he does a bit of a case study where he looks at the person of Abraham and looks at the story of Abraham from Genesis. And the reason why he does this is because the original audience that Paul is writing to, Abraham, it's probably an understatement to say, but Abraham was a huge deal. In the same way that we might look at a sport, we might look at the NFL, like Tom Brady is a huge deal. Or we might look at the NBA, LeBron James is a huge deal. For the Jews that Paul is writing to, Abraham was a very, 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 very big deal. He was a huge deal and someone that they looked to regularly and defined themselves by regularly. And if you don't remember the story of Abraham, let me give you a quick overview. In Genesis, God called him, who at the time was named Abraham, and he says, hey, leave your country. And he promised him to show him another land and promised that through him, he was gonna bless all people on earth through him. And then later God identified this, uh, this other land as Canaan and declared that even though Abram and his wife, Sarah were super old, he said, I am going to bless you. Even though you're unable to have children, your descendants are gonna be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God confirmed this promise of a son and changed Abram's name to Abraham to signify that he would be the father of many nations. And he signified this covenant that God made with Abraham by, by, by circumcising him. And through that, that was to mark the covenant that God made with Abraham. And we read this story, whether you've grown up reading it, you're hearing my overview of it right now, we can clearly see that Abraham was brought into right standing, not by his works, but by his faith in Jesus. That it was his faith in God that brought him into the right standing that he was with God. It wasn't by his actions. Even actually, if you look in the story of Abraham, there's numerous times where Abraham sins. He drops the ball big time. He even laughs in the face of God when he tells him, hey, I'm gonna make you a father of many nations, even though you don't have any kids. Him and his wife both laugh at that. And then even two numerous times, Abraham lets fear get the best of him, even though God's like, hey dude, I got you. Don't worry, just follow me. And he still drops the ball. However, in this original context, in this original, there was a common misconception with a lot of Jews that when they looked at the story of Abraham, they believed, and you can see this in all different types of Jewish writings, that they thought Abraham was brought into right standing by his righteous works. And this is why in Romans 4, Paul picks Abraham to argue against this and prove that right standing doesn't come from your works. It comes only in your faith in Jesus. And there's three things that he speaks against that were prevalent in that culture today. And, And I think if we dig a little bit deeper this morning, it's prevalent in the lives of many Christians today in 2022. The first is this, that no religious activity can save us. In Romans 4, 9 through 12, I've already mentioned it a little bit, but Paul speaks about the act of circumcision and how Abraham was brought into right standing before he was circumcised. 
Abraham wasn't declared righteous by God. If we look in Genesis, he wasn't declared righteous by God until Genesis 15, 6. And then he was circumcised in Genesis 17. And Bible scholars say that between those two moments, 10 to 15 years had gone by. And this is to show that the religious activity was not meant to be a means in which, hey, by this, Abraham, you're brought into right relationship with me as God. No, it was more so an external marker to show what God had done internally inside of him. In the same way that the wedding ring that's on my left hand right here, this is not what makes me married. If I lost it, my wife Lauren would probably be mad about it. But if I lost it, I still would be married. Why? Because this is a symbol of the covenant that Lauren and I have made with each other for life. And I think a lot of times with the religious activities that we do, even though they're great things, like showing up to church, like reading our Bibles, like praying, making the decision, decision to get baptized, making the decision to serve in church, we can use these things sometimes as a means to, hey, I'm gonna do these things so that God can love me more. We still face this temptation today that the, that the people that Paul is writing to face during that time. That for the Christian, you don't come to church to earn a right standing with God. That you're a part of the people of God because by Jesus, you have been put in right standing with him. That you read your Bible not to earn God's love, but you read your Bible and you pray from a place because the love of God has been poured out on you and for you by the person and work and the death and resurrection of Jesus. That we decide, if you decide to make that decision to get baptized, the baptism itself, the water, there's nothing, we say this all the time, there's nothing special about the water. It doesn't do anything to you. It doesn't, it doesn't cleanse. It, that's not what cleanses you. What baptism is, is it's an external proclamation on Jesus internally cleansing you through his person and work. And so often we can use these things that are great things. None of those things I just mentioned are bad, but we can use those things as a way to try to earn a right standing with God. But what Paul tells us through the story of Abraham is that right standing with God does not come from any religious activity that we do. But not only that, we see this, we see that rule following cannot save us. And Paul talks about this. He continues his argument in Romans 4, 13 through 17 by showing us that following God's law laid out for us in scripture, that won't save us either. He uses an interesting phrase. If you look in your Bibles, maybe check this out later. He, he uses an interesting phrase in 4.14 where he says, those who are of the law, when referring to those in the church that had based their standing with God off of their doing or not doing of the Mosaic law laid out for us in the Old Testament. And, and so what he did was he used Abraham as an example. Once again, if we look at the story, it's not like God tells him, hey, follow the rules, be a good boy and then I'll fulfill my promise with you. That's not what happens. Instead, we see, again, like I said, he sins many, many times throughout the story. And what he says, hey, put your faith and trust in me and you will be saved and blessed forever. And the same is true for us again, that we, we, can, we can boil down the Christian faith a lot of times into a lot of things that were to do and not to do. Hey, wear this, don't wear this. Listen to this. Don't listen to this. Watch this, don't watch this. Say this, don't say this. Do this, don't do this. And we think, man, if I do more good 
than I do bad, then yeah, me and God, we're straight, right? Like we're gonna be good. If I do more good than bad, but that's not what the gospel says. The gospel doesn't say you're bad and you need to be made good. It says that because of your sin, as we've already seen, that you are dead and you need to be made alive. And as Jesus says throughout the gospels, but specifically in Matthew 23, 26, when he's talking to the religious teachers of that time, he says that first clean the inside of the cup and dish so that the outside may become clean as well. And so often for a lot of us, myself included, all we focus on is the outside. We focus on the things that we're not doing and that we're doing. We focus on what we are trying to portray people. When people look at us, we want to portray something to them that may not be true on the inside. And what Paul is showing us and what Jesus shows us in that passage is for the heart of the one who is in their sin apart from Jesus, it is fractured and in need of saving. And it's not by cleaning up the outside that fixes it. It's when the inside is addressed that healing and salvation comes to be in our lives. And so we see it's not through rule following. The last thing is this, no family member can save us. No family member can save us. It's worth noting that the Jews that Paul is writing to, like I said, they put a lot of stock in the fact that they were a part of the lineage of Abraham. And they, they thought in their minds, they automatically thought, well, hey, we're the people of Abraham. That means we're good. We can do whatever we want and we're good. But what we need to realize is that physical ancestors, they don't guarantee spiritual conversion for us. And this is something that I had to wrestle through in my own life. I thought in the church that I grew up in, all of my family members went there and all of them proclaimed to be Christians. And so I thought, well, hey, my grandma's a Christian. My grandpa's a Christian. My mom's a Christian. My dad's a Christian. My brother's a Christian. My aunts are Christian. Like I'm a Christian, right? But that's not what it means. The faith of your grandma or the faith of a parent or the, or, or the faith of a sibling, that does not save you because you need to come to a place where your faith is personal and you make the intentional decision for yourself to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus. And as we see in all of these three things, the commonality that Paul says is it's not through this thing that we're saved, but it's by one thing. It's in our faith in Jesus. And I think the question that we have to ask is why is our faith in Jesus the only thing that saves us? And that leads us to the last truth of the gospel where it says this, it's a cross. And it says that only Jesus can save us and bring us into right standing with God forever. Look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 19 in chapter five. Earlier, he said, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That even though Adam's disobedience led to us being sinners, he says, however, through Jesus's obedience, ultimately seen in his death, many will be brought into right standing with God for eternity. And why is it this way? It's because as we've already stated, God demands for us to be saved from our sin. But the beautiful part about God and the way that he loves us so much is that he doesn't just demand it, but he offers us the perfect way and the only way for it to be done. He sends his son to be a perfect sacrifice that we need 
to make a, a salvation a reality for each and every one of us. That Jesus' act of obedience on the cross allowed him to take on our sin and the punishment for our sin as it, it was his very own, that if we turn away from our sin and we turn to him as Lord and Savior of our lives, it says that we will be saved and brought into right relationship with him. What does it mean for him to be Savior and Lord? For him to be Savior means that we believe that only he leads to eternal life. That for him to be Savior, that, that, that him alone, nothing else, nothing in this world, we can have the fullness of life only in Jesus. For him to be Lord, not only does he alone lead to eternal life, but for him to be Lord, it means that only he deserves my entire life. And if we put our trust in him in this way, he promises that in him, we may have right standing with God. Only him, that if we call upon his name, that is above every name, we will be saved. That is the gospel. That is the greatest news that any of us could ever have. And if you do not believe this morning that God loves you and that he doesn't want a personal relationship with you, look at the cross. Paul looks at this in, in, in Romans 5 verses eight through nine, look what he says. But God proves his own love for us. And that while we were perfect, no, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? In this passage, we see that God proves his love for us and that he gave his only son to save us. That we see that God proves his love for us, that he gave Jesus as our sacrifice, not when we had our lives together, not when we were friends of God, but, but from what Paul says in other passages, when we were enemies of God. God proves his love for us, that he promises for those who trust in the name of Jesus, we can be assured today, not by what we have done or what we have not done, but because of the work of Christ on the cross and in the grave, that the future wrath that we deserve before our sins, it has been absorbed for us by Christ. That regardless of what this life brings our way, that we will be reconciled to God now and forever. And the sad reality that I want us to sit in this morning as we respond to the gospel message, the sad reality that should move us into urgency that for the many who are still in Adam and are living apart from Jesus and are still living a life apart from him in sin, this life on earth is the closest thing that they'll ever have to heaven wants to sit in that reality for a moment. That for the one that is apart from Christ and is living life in their sin, this life in the midst of so much pain, in the midst of so much brokenness, in the so, so much dissension, that this life is the closest thing that they'll ever have to heaven. That there will come a day if they don't turn from their sin and give their life to Christ as their Lord and Savior, there will come a day where they will spend eternity paying for their sin by experiencing the wrath of God. But on the flip side of that, for those that are Christ's followers, the great news that we have in the gospel this morning is that this life that we live on earth, this is the closest thing to hell that we will ever experience. That in this life, 
in the midst of so much pain and so much hurt that God promises us that there will come a day where death is no more, that there will come a day where suffering is no more, that there will be a day where pain is no more. And as Christians, this is the very lens that we need to see our lives through on a daily basis. And we need to remind ourselves daily over and over and over again. It's not the lens of our political party. It's not the lens of our family status. It's not the lens of a paycheck. It's not the lens of how well we're doing in school. It's not the lens of how many friends we have or we might not have is the lens that we should look through that tells us that in the midst of so much pain and brokenness that we remember that this is as bad as it will ever get. That this present pain that I'm in, this present trial, it pales in comparison to the eternal riches that I have in Christ right now and I'll enjoy forevermore that this is as bad as it gets. And so in light of all this this morning, again, I I understand just because you're in church, that doesn't mean you have it all together. And I don't want it to be that way. And just because I'm up here, that doesn't mean I have it all together. I'm as jacked up as the rest of y'all. But what we need to ask this morning is where are we? In your spiritual life, where are you this morning? How would you describe your relationship with God? And as we wrap up this morning, I wanna ask you a question. A lot of times when I have conversations with people about faith, Christians and non-Christians, I'll go to one singular question and it really opens the door. I would encourage you to, to try it. Uh, but but it, it, it opens the door to so many great conversations with people where you're able to get an idea of where they are and, and to be able to have a good conversation with them. So I'm gonna ask you to do something. I promise I'm not gonna like come up and do anything to you, but I just want you to close your eyes just for, just for a few moments. I want you to close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, I want you to think through your answer to this question. On a scale of one to 10, one being the least amount of confidence and 10 being fully confident, how confident are you that you will go to heaven when you die? I'll repeat that. Think through it for for a few seconds. On a scale of one to 10, one being least confident, 10 being fully confident, how confident are you that you will go to heaven when you die. And I want you to keep your eyes closed as you're thinking about it. But, but when, I say, when I say the number that applies to you, I just want you to raise your hand, no looking around, eyes closed. How many of you would say full confidence that you're a 10 this morning? That you're confident that you are going to heaven when you die? Awesome. All right, you can put your hands down. How many of you would say seven, eight, or nine? How many of you would say a seven, eight, or nine? Okay. All right, what about a four, five, or six? How many of you would say that? Okay. What about a one, two, or three this morning? Okay. All right, you can, you can open your eyes. And the reason I ask this is because it doesn't come as a shock that the people in this room and the people that are at one of our other campuses or the people watching online, not everybody answered a 10. Not everybody, I'm not naive to think that just because you're in church or maybe you say you're a Christian, you're gonna answer a 10. And a lot of times more than not, there's a few reasons why we don't answer with a 10, regardless of if you're following Jesus or if you've been following him for a short amount of time, long amount of time, or you're not following him at all. A number of different reasons why. There's two in particular that I see more, more often than not. 
The first reason for some people, what holds them back from answering a 10 is that they trust in their sin more than Jesus. You're like, what, what do you mean by that? Trust in my sin. What I mean by that is there is something in your past that has almost cast this cloud over you that it's chained this weight to your soul that you're like, I, I, there, I can't shake this decision. That the consequences from this decision, I'll never be able to, I'll never be good enough to be a 10. I'll never be good enough to, to fully confident, with full confidence to be able to answer that question with a 10 that I will spend eternity with God in heaven. For others, you don't answer with a 10 because you're on the completely other side of the spectrum. Instead of trusting in your sin more than you trust in Jesus, you trust in yourself more than you trust in Jesus. And what I mean by that, instead of looking at your shortcomings and focusing on that, you focus on your accomplishments. You say, hey, I've done a lot of good things. I'm relatively all around, I'm a good person. I'm about a seven, eight or nine, but I'm never gonna be a 10. That's for like Mother Teresa or whoever it is, right? Like I, I'm never going, I'm never gonna be good enough for that. I'm never gonna be good enough to be a 10. And what I wanna tell you, if you fall in one of those two categories this morning, I want us to please hear what the gospel says to each and every one of us. Because the gospel says this, it says, you will never be good enough, but thanks be to God that Jesus is for us. That we'll never be good enough, but thanks be to him who sent his perfect son to take our place and for us to put our faith in him. That yes, as Paul's word says, that yes, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many will be put in right standing with God. That Jesus, the name that is above every name, the one who was without sin came to earth to make himself sin, to take on the punishment that you and I deserve so that if we call upon his name and put our faith and trust in him, that we can have the relationship that we're created to have with him that is greater than anything this life could ever bring us. And so for you this morning, if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, if you've never made that decision to turn from your sin and to turn to him as your Lord and savior, this morning is the perfect opportunity for you to do so. And what I would encourage you to do, whether you're on campus here 